Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. As always, I have to emphasize just how much we appreciate the questions you send us, since they often inform what we decide to cover in our episodes. Case in point, we've received so many great questions about TSS, or training stress score, that we wanted to look at this popular metric from several angles. Most of today's episode is devoted to those questions, and stay tuned for a future episode where we'll take an even closer look at TSS. I have to note, there are many opinions about TSS. There isn't a single answer as to its best use or how effective it is for your overall planning. Some people might rely heavily on it, while others see it as a single tool and a much larger toolbox to be used sparingly. Today, we'll talk about Coach Connor's experience and bias using TSS, both with himself and his athletes. We'll delve into how he uses it in planning, how it informs certain parts of the season, and I'll share a few cautionary tales about when not to rely on this metric in your data analysis. And also today, we'll be fielding questions about the best textbooks and research sources on exercise physiology, and we'll take a question from our voicemail about training at altitude. As always, find us on social media. Our handle is at RealFastLabs. Sign up for our newsletter to get special announcements on new episodes, learn about Zwift rides with famous guests, and much more by visiting fastlabs.com. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we get, the easier it is for others to find us. And tell all your friends that we have our own channel now and will no longer be heard on the Vela News channel. Finally, as always, thanks again for all your questions and comments. Keep them coming. Write us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or call 719-800-2112 and leave us a voicemail. Now let's make it fast. Since today we're going to try this theme of focusing on one particular aspect of exercise physiology, or at least a metric within that realm, TSS, I think it's probably worth starting with a bit of a definition of what TSS is, give some of your bias, perhaps some of some background on what that is, how it's calculated. This is something that's becoming pretty ubiquitous. I think if you use any training software at this point, you're going to see some version of TSS. They might have different names of it. Training stress score is trademarked by Training Peaks, and that concept was developed by Dr. Andy Coggin and, and Hunter Allen. We, we definitely need to give our credit here, but pretty much you go on any training ride now and you're gonna hear people talking about TSS and CTL. It's, they're just becoming very common terms. You have to first understand FTP, which is a simple one. FTP by definition is the power that you can sustain for an hour. Though even the, the software has moved a, a little bit away from that. So they have your one hour FTP, but sometimes now that, for example, at Training Peaks, they have also a fatigue score, which is how long you can sustain your FTP. Uh, for If you look at my Training Peaks right now, it tells me what my FTP is, but says you can only sustain that for 32 minutes. So even that gets a little bit complex. But FTP is that threshold power. It's it, original definition, what you can sustain for an hour. TSS is based off of FTP. It's just a number. So it's not like power where you have watts at the end or heart rate where you have BPM. 
it's just a number. There's no, no unit afterwards. Uh, a score of 100 is the equivalent of riding for an hour at your FTP. FTP is critical to TSS because there's a multiplier and it's based on what percentage of your FTP you're riding at. So everybody knows zones. Um, Dr. Coggin created a zone model that's based on percentages of FTP and each zone gets a multiplier. So the easier you're going, the smaller the multiplier, the harder you're going, the bigger the multiplier. So you can rack up, if you could somehow ride well above FTP for extended periods of time, you'd really rack up TSS. If you're riding in zone one, just noodling along, you're gonna very slowly tick up your TSS. So obviously this number is an attempt to give a, a score, a number to your ride so that you can compare in a way how hard one is to the other. But it seems like, uh, you know, because it's based on a formula here and it's based on FTP, which is an estimate of things, that there are some, uh, you know, it's an attempt, but there are probably some shortcomings to it. It's just like any other metric, uh, especially when you start going multiple levels through metrics. It needs to be taken with a grain of salt. It's useful, but you'll hear coaches say this all the time, and, and Dr. Coggin even said this on the show, 100 TSS is not 100 TSS. You always have to look at how was that TSS generated. So you might have two rides where you get 100 TSS, but if one of them was a 40K time trial versus the other one was a three-and-a-half-hour ride in zone one, they're both going to be 100. One's going to kill you. One is not, and they're going to work very different systems. So you have to be really careful about looking at that TSS score and just saying, I got a 200, therefore that improved my, my training, my fitness, X amount. All TSS scores are not made the same. Right. So they are devoid of the context of the ride itself, which is an extremely important piece of the puzzle right. that's kind of missing from it. Right. And uh, it's important to point out, even the creators of TSS have said this, and, and people need to be aware of this, because I, I do see a lot of rider, riders forget about that, and they really focus on the score and not how that score is being generated. And the, the, the biggest issue with this is there you get in, and we'll talk more about this answering these questions, but riders get into this mentality of it's all about how much TSS I can generate in a week. So if I have less time, I'll go harder and I'll end up with the same TSS score and everything's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll bring this up again, but the, whenever I hear an athlete talk that way, I always go, if the instructions say to bake a turkey at 250 degrees for six hours, you can't then put the turkey in the oven for three hours at 500 degrees and expect to get the same thing. Mm, yeah, those would be two very different Thanksgiving dinners. Yes. I'm not sure which I'd like better. <laughs> I, I Probably the first. <laughs> probably the first. Second one's probably going to be charred on the outside and still somewhat cold on the inside. Yeah. Neither of us are chefs. We should probably um, move on from this analogy, shouldn't we, Trevor? Well, in this analogy, no matter what I do, if I'm baking the turkey, the fire alarm's going off. In the <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Well, is it time to jump into some of these questions then? 
Yeah, let's do it. Well, the first question we had pertaining to TSS was this um, question from Peter Malarkey, and it uh, pertains to the TSS or the use of TSS in the context of weekly planning. So I'll read it now. Here's a topic I have been wrestling with. I'm looking to try a more polarized approach to my training this year, basically doing a hard polarized ride on Tuesdays, alternating between 4x4-minute VO2 efforts one week and a 4x8-minute threshold or thereabouts ride the next week, and riding as much zone 2 the rest of the week. I find using the PMC very helpful to handle TSS, CTL, ramp rates, and look at freshness for racing. But as has been discussed, TSS doesn't reflect the strain of long zone 2 rides. For example, I did a 2 and 3 quarter hour zone 2 ride yesterday and got a 91 TSS score, but was feeling more like a 120 level of tiredness. So his question is, since both Trevor and Dr. Seiler have said in a recent episode that they don't rely on TSS, how do they plan? And I think first, for those who are unfamiliar with some of these acronyms in the piece here, PM, PMC and CTL, Trevor, what are those? Yeah, good. So we also need to define these, and we'll probably have a couple other things over the course of this episode where we that we also need to define. CTL is the next iteration. So we talked about you can't understand TSS without understanding FTP. Well, you can't understand CTL without understanding TSS. So CTL, you will always see on a graph, um, and that is your performance management chart or your, your PMC. And again, you'll see different variations. We're using the terminology that, that Dr. Coggin and, and Hunter Allen came up with. Um, and, and so these are the original terms. So CTL is chronic training load. And what it does is takes a 48-day running average of your TSS score. And I, I believe it's, it's exponential. So more recent rides weigh a little more heavily than, um, than older rides to come up with basically a here's, essentially think of CTL as here is the sort of TSS, daily TSS you've been averaging. Mm. So if your CTL is, is 100, it's basically saying you are uh, averaging out to about 100, 100 TSS per week, which is pretty big because if you think about a good hard interval workout for most people is going to be 100 to 150 TSS. And if you're averaging 100 a, a, a day, that means you're, you're doing 700 TSS per week. It's big. That's hard. Most masters athletes, you're going to see when they're on, on top fitness doing 8 to 11 hours a week, you're, you're going to probably see their CTL in the 70, 80, maybe 90 range. Uh, for, for your average kind of cat 3 to 2, you're going to see 100 to 120. For pros, you can see them get up 150, 160, which is just insane. Again, very important to remember, this is all based on having an accurate FTP. And I used to, I, I used to just set my FTP at 325 to allow me to compare my level um, across years. So I would end up with CTLs up close to 200 
some years and much lower other years. That was actually not the way CTL was meant to be used. But I just felt, you know, if I'm when I'm stronger, I'm able to ride higher percentage of, of FTP. Uh, if I set that FTP just at a solid 325, so I can see which years I'm stronger. Mm. Better way to use it is just that you need to make sure you're constantly updating your FTP. And then what you're going to see is generally you're going to hit your peak fitness at about the same level. And, and athletes who are very experienced with this will talk about, I find I'm at my best when I'm right around, say, 120 TSS. When I start hitting 130, I'm, I'm pushing over training. If I'm at 100, I know I'm not quite on, on fitness yet which can be a useful metric. And I will say I have actually found this to be fairly accurate. When you start using a, a long-term, like 48-day running average, I think it does get rid of some of the noise and you start getting quite a valuable metric. So I look at CTL a lot. So back to Peter's question here, he was mentioning that you and, um, and Dr. Seiler have said that you don't rely on TSS so how do you plan? I guess it seems like you you don't rely exclusively on TSS and CTL, but you definitely incorporate that into the other metrics as well as um, people's feedback or if you're dealing with yourself, your own um, sensations and experience. And, and that's how you plan. And, and yep. it, there's some art and there's some science and it's, it's up to a good coach or a good athlete to figure out the, the best combination of all of these yeah. things. So I, I would say the short, short version of my answer is I started looking at CTL a long time ago and found it, have found it very valuable as an athlete and as a coach. It's actually only been recently that my Garmin gave me the option to see my TSS while I was riding, and I regret every day that I ever put that screen on my Garmin. I actually have found it, it's hurt my training. It hasn't helped because... I am a competitive athlete. I see a number. I want to make a number bigger. Mm. And I think that's a bad approach. And I look back at my best year's training, and I look at my long endurance rides. And when you look at my TSS score for those rides when I was doing them right, it wasn't very high. And I have a hard time now going out and doing an endurance ride and accepting the, well, I just did five hours on the bike. and only got a TSS of, of 220. Boy, what a waste of time. And there's nice. this desire to, uh, now I need to go and go harder to drive that TSS up. But I know from experience, I was doing smarter training back then. I was going more by feel with my athletes. And so when I was coaching before all these metrics, and what, what, I, what I really relied on, and I still mostly rely on, is focusing on purpose. I, every week talk to my athletes. What is the purpose of this week? What are we trying to accomplish? How do you want to feel? The same thing with the rides. What's the purpose of this ride? What do you want to accomplish? And that's far more important to me than saying, I want this ride to hit a TSS of, of 200 or whatever the TSS is. It's much more, did you accomplish the purpose of that ride? I've also, from the, the, the pros that I know, that's much more how they approach the rides. And they really don't care what TSS they, they, they got on that ride. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would encourage Peter to do, is to really focus more on what am I trying to get out of this ride? What am I trying to get out of this week? What is this week about? Now, when you're talking about the week, Again, TSS can be a little more helpful. 
a 300 TSS week versus a 700 TSS week versus a 1200 TSS week, no matter how you got there, uh, is, are going to be very different weeks. That, that 300 is probably going to be relatively easy. That 700 is going to be hard. That 1200 is going to have you in bed for the next couple of days. Anything else that uh, would help Peter in his planning of his weeks and training? So another thing that I used a lot with athletes back before we had these metrics, and I still use, I think is really important, is having benchmarks. Uh, don't get too reliant on a number, even CTL, and say, oh, my CTL is X, therefore I'm at the best fitness of my life. It, it isn't that simple. I think if you talk to Dr. Andy Coggin, he would say it's not that simple. This is a guide. So using having some sort of benchmarks is critical. What I used to do was I had a set of time trials that I did in the, in the winter that would help me see where my fitness is. And then quite simply, I had test races that I would go to to see where my fitness is at. And no matter what my numbers were saying, if I'm in a race at the back of the field barely hanging on and I can't jump across to moves, I know where my fitness is at. You can't hide from that. And you can't look at a number and say, well, yes, I was getting popped in the races, but my number is this, so I'm on the best fitness of my life. It's No, ultimately this comes down to performance. And, and one of the best examples I've personally had was 2007, which I will still say was my best season ever. We had a series, I was living in Victoria at the time, we had a series of training races that we did every week. And in April, uh, I had done two of those, so two weeks in a row, and got popped both weeks. And I had great numbers. All my numbers were looking fantastic for me, but I was getting popped in the races, so I knew something was really off. Those training races showed me flaws in my fitness that, that the numbers were not showing. It allowed me to just tour the Gila despite being an absolute disaster, uh, was great training, and a month later I was on the form of my life. And I don't think I would have been there had I not had these real-world benchmarks that you need to listen to. Right. Last thing I will bring up is just still being careful with all of these metrics because CTL, TSS, all these things ultimately are based on FTP. So what if you have your FTP wrong? then ultimately all these metrics are wrong. Also, what if time trialing is not your strength? What if you are more that sprinter type with really big anaerobic power, but maybe not the best FTP in the world? Then again, the, the, the TSS, the CTL might not be representing you quite well. So it does need to be taken with a grain of salt. Definitely, yeah. The fact that it's based on an estimate, um, and if that estimate is wrong, it, it just leads to a cascade of, of assumptions that can lead to a lot of poor information, I guess. If you put poor, poor data in, you get poor data out, right? Yep. And I'll admit to you, last summer, uh, because I saw looking at TSS was making me go too hard, on my Garmin, not on my software, but on my Garmin, I dropped my FTP a lot. Mm, just so I could get these huge TSSs out of my rides and, and be happy with it and not train them <laughs> in bad have you ways. Ever, have you ever thought of just taking the TSS field off of your Garmin so you don't see it anymore? 
Okay, Chris, I've got eight <laughs> screens on my Garmin with 10 fields each. You know I have to have every single metric possible on my Garmin. All right. Yeah, that's true. That was a dumb question. <laughs> Even if I don't use it, I just have to have it. All right. Well, let's move on to our next question. Again, this one pertains to TSS, but is in line more with training the base season, training the season as a whole, and it comes from Devin Knickerbocker. And I'll read his question now. I'm listening to episode 90 right now on mixing things up in the base season. It sounds like generally, although there are variations, the answer is to one, introduce intensity into your base training without overdoing it, i.e. don't do high intensity every day. Two, ensure that remaining days are just endurance, even if those rides are not long, i.e. no three-hour rides on the trainer, etc. And three, use cross-training to your advantage, e.g. weightlifting, running, cross-country skiing. My question is, what metrics do you use to plan all of this? In other words, hours will definitely not be useful. You'll probably be training the same amount of hours each week, but the intensity balance will change. Similarly, TSS will only ever be so useful, right? Because your TSS might be lower in base, then grow in season when the weather gets nice. Traditional planning was always growing TSS over the winter, then letting it drop as you switch to more specific training. Here it's flipped, so building an annual training plan around target TSS wouldn't make sense. So, what do you use in your planning? Gradually growing time at intensity while also growing time in aerobic mode and let TSS chips fall as they may? As a coach, what tools do you use to plan ahead? And if you can't use CTL as a rough measure of your fitness, what would you use? So we have partially answered a lot of this in that previous question. So I'm just going to expand on some of what we talked about. And I think what I'll do is talk about, he brought up hours versus TSS versus CTL in base. So why don't we just take each of those and pull in what we had just talked about and, and, and say what we think they mean. Yeah. I'll start with hours. And, and I'm actually, well, so first I'm going to start with those three points that he brought up at the very beginning. Uh, in my opinion, spot on. Agree with you completely. So that was the uh, introduce intensity into your base training without overdoing it. Uh, ensure that remaining days are just endurance and bring in a lot of cross training. I agree, and in base, cross-training is fantastic. Where I disagree with you, with Devin, is on hours. When you are in pure training mode, I don't think hours are useless. And let me explain that. If you are taking a particular training approach, for example, if you are polarizing your training where a certain percentage is high intensity, most of your, your time is, is low intensity, there's only two ways to increase training stress. Quick addendum here. I said training stress, not TSS. TSS is a metric for figuring out training stress. It is very important some way or another to monitor the amount of training stress you're producing each week because you need to produce enough stress to bring about adaptations. So I'm talking about training stress as a, a general concept right now. So if, for example, if you're polarizing or if you are doing sweet spot um, training approach, ultimately the only way to increase your training stress is to increase that volume. 
or you have to fundamentally change the approach you're taking to training. So if you say, I'm going to lock in at 10 hours per week, I want to increase my training stress, only way to do that is to do more intensity or to change the type of intensity you're doing. And then you have to ask the question, is this beneficial? So if you say more, here's my approach, I'm polarized or I'm sweet spot or whatever approach you're taking, and you say, I need to up my training stress, you can only do that with volume. Going back to that, that cooking the turkey analogy, we talked about temperature, we talked about volume or time, how long you cook the turkey. Time's a very important metric in this equation. So the next question about using TSS, this is the danger of TSS, is if you are trying to measure your base season by TSS and you want to increase that training stress, there is that giant temptation to say, okay, I can't increase volume, so I'm just going to do intensity every single ride. And that's when you get people in January who are hopping on Zwift doing training races five days a week because they get this giant TSS score for that week and they think the training's going great, but you're, you're forgetting about what is your approach? How are you training yourself? What, and this is just the, I'm just going to rip myself apart approach right. and it's not necessarily better. Now, again, a quick addendum. If you're just training five hours a week, yeah, go and rip yourself apart because you're doing a ton of recovery time. You're, you're not going to overtrain doing that. Um, but if you're trying to do anything above that, you need to think about what approach you're using. And then, yeah, volume is an, a very important part of that. And I watch the volume that my athletes are putting in in the winter very closely. So we address TSS, and, and this is where it gets to be a bit of an issue because you can forget about your approach by focusing on TSS. But now I'm going to say something that's a little bit contradictory, which is still looking at your weekly TSS can give some guidance as long as you are using a, an approach and, and being true to that approach. So if you're being true to the approach, like the polarized approach, and you are doing a bigger weekly TSS than you were doing in January, but staying true to the approach, that means you've increased your training stress, and, and hopefully you're seeing further adaptations. I think that one thing that's clear as you describe TSS and CTL and the, the different metrics here and the other metrics that you've used in the past is that there is no single metric right. that you can look at exclusively. All of these things are helpful in their own way, helpful for a specific part of your training, or in a perhaps some are more um, useful in a specific part of a season, but it's really about uh, the ability of the athlete himself or his or her coach to take all of these data points, all of these metrics, synthesize it into uh, an overview and an overall picture of where they are at the moment, where they want to be in, in a week's time, a month's time, or in six months' time. So it is complex. There's a lot yeah. of stuff going on, and, and that's something to bear in mind here is you're not going to get all of this if you're new. You're not going to get it right away. It does take some experience dealing with these things. And that's, yeah, as you said, the numbers can get very complex. 
The numbers can also get you away from just simply seeing where you're at. With my athletes, every week, at the end of the week, how are you feeling? How recovered are you? So if we had a week where I said, this is just a standard re- uh, training week, I want you coming out of the week feeling pretty in balance, and we get to the end of that week, and the TSS was about where I expect, the, the, the workouts are about what I expect, but they say, I am dragging my feet. I could not get out of bed. I feel awful. Something's off course, and the numbers aren't always going to show that. So you need to keep that self-awareness. And I adjust my athletes' training plans more when I hear that than when I look at a TSS or a CTL or volume or any of those metrics because they aren't really telling me where the athlete's at as much as I woke up this morning and I felt like I got hit by a bus. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to trust that. And you can't go, well, I feel like I got hit by a bus, but my TSS was only X for last week, so therefore I'm going to ignore how I feel. doesn't work that way. Right. Yep. Last thing I will say, again, going back to the metrics, is, again, CTL can be a good guide, and you do want over the winter to see your CTL coming up. On the flip side, you don't want to see it too high too early. So if I have an athlete, their CTL is is pushing 100 in January, something's off, unless they're a top pro. But when I'm talking about a master's athlete or a recreational cyclist, if they're hitting 100 CTL in the middle of January, it means they're probably going to be overtrained and needing a giant rest by the start of the season or sometime in April. So mm-hmm. I like to see that CTL low uh, you know, beginning of January or sometime in December. I want to see it as low as 40 or 50 or even lower for athletes that peak out around 80 and then bring it up. And so if an athlete, if I know an athlete, let's say, is hits their, their best form when their CTL is around 110, I want to finish the base season in that, 90, 100-ish range, um, and then top it off. And then, you know, right before their big event, bring them up to that, that, that 110 CTL, spend a little time there, and then bring it down again. Let's, uh, let's move on to another question that pertains to TSS, and this one has to do with the use of trainers. And it comes from Manuel Dominguez of Portugal. He says, I'm a 40-year-old amateur I began riding the bike in 2018 and haven't stopped since. Because of the quarantine, we all began doing more hours on the trainer, and there is a stigma that doing a lot of hours on the trainer is bad for your health. i got to concur with, with Manuel. Too many hours on the trainer bad for your mental health, especially. But I digress. He says, On the other hand, due to my work schedule, I end up doing many hours on the trainer during the week. Some people say that one hour on the trader corresponds to two hours on the road. Some say that you shouldn't do more than an hour and a half on the trainer. Others say the limit is more like one and a quarter hours. So he has a couple questions for us. Can you match the time on the trainer to the time on the road? In other words, if you do two hours at 200 watts on the road or on the trainer, will you end up with the same TSS result? But is it really the same? 
Everybody says that on the trainer, you will get more training effect for the same time. Is this a myth or is this true? And his other question is, is there a limit to what you can do on a trainer before it starts doing more harm than good? Every friend and bike guru has a magical number. Is there a number for the amount of hours that you can do on a trainer? Trevor, what do you think? Boy, that's a great question. It is a complex answer, but my first response is go back and check out episode 60 because that episode was quite literally written and designed to answer this question of the ins and outs of, of the trainer and whether the trainer is the same as the road. So the short, the short answer there is no, it isn't correct. It, it is not. And so what I'm actually, what I, I quite literally grabbed my notes from that podcast and, and just really shorten them. So what I'm going to give you now is the five minute summary of that episode, which is not going to do it justice. So if you're really interested in this, if you're not that interested, here's the five minute summary. If <laughs> you we want go. the yeah. much more detailed, thorough answer, go back, check out that episode. And if I'm not mistaken, that was with Kieran O'Grady, who has done some uh, great research with one of, uh, in, in, uh, in the UK, he's Irish, but in the UK, he was doing some research on this very topic in a lab to test the differences between trainer time and on the road time. And Kieran's now, uh, I, I believe he's still with, um, the world, a world tour team as their physiologist. So yep. it was a great episode. Yep. And we found him because I was desperately trying to find research that answered these questions. And there was surprisingly little research, but I came up with a couple studies and lo and behold, his name was on every one. So he is, he is the expert here, in my opinion. But let's start with, first of all, riding on a trainer is not the same as riding out on the road. The inertial properties are very different. So when you are on the road, you have the weight of your body and the weight of your bike generating inertia. So if you stop you, on a flat road, if you stop pedaling, you're going to carry for a long time. That is not true on a trainer. The inertia is generated by a flywheel. That flywheel is very small. So your inertia, you, you just don't have the same inertia and you're, it's going to come to a stop much quicker. So that actually changes the biomechanics of your pedal stroke. And again, I, you know, I'd go and check out Kieran's research. He, he did some really fascinating research on this, showing the ways in which the, the pedal stroke changes. There's this kind of, going back to the question of whether an hour is worth more or worth less on the, the trainer, you can make arguments both ways. You can make arguments that it's worth more because when you do an hour on the trainer, you are pedaling that entire hour. You have to. So where if you're out on the road, you're going to have lots of times when you're not pedaling. So out on the road, if you do an hour ride, you might be pedaling for 45 minutes, say. If you do an hour ride on the trainer, you're probably pedaling for 59 minutes. So in that way, you're getting more value for the buck out of the, the, the hour on the trainer. The issue is it's different biomechanics. 
you are literally training a different pedal stroke. So if your goal is to race out on the road, you are training a pedal stroke that you're not going to use out on the road. So in some ways, it's not as valuable. Another way that you can argue that's not as valuable that uh, we brought up in that episode is they showed that rate of perceived exertion for a given wattage is higher on the trainer and there is more of a mental load. So an, an hour on the trainer is going to essentially mentally drain you more than an hour out on the road. And well, you can say, yeah, but that's not physical, that's mental. I always like to point out to my athletes that overtraining, particularly burnout, or burnout is entirely mental, but this always starts mentally. So I have seen very dedicated athletes in the winter say, I want to do 15 hours of training a week. I can't get outside, so I'm going to do 15 hours on the trainer. And, and I've seen a bunch of times that just mentally crushes people. First coach I ever worked with, he had me do that because he was really big on it's all metrics. We have to get accurate numbers. And when you're out in the road, there's all this little variability in the road called hills and risers and all that sort of stuff. And that messes up your numbers. So I want you training 15 hours uh, a day or a week on the trainer. And that was one of my worst seasons ever because I was burnt out by mid-March. Miserable. That sounds so miserable. Yep. Now, you will s certainly things like Zwift, Be Cool, all these uh, virtual training apps help. So I, before, when my athletes were either watching TV or staring at a brick wall, I would never have them do more than three hours inside. Uh, now with these tools, I'm, I'm willing to give my athletes more inside. I certainly would still never give an athlete a six-hour ride on the trainer. That sounds absolutely brutal. Uh, we've talked about this a couple times now, that if you're going to do the try to get some volume on the trainer, for that mental side, break it up. Do two-a-days. Get two in the morning, two and a half in the afternoon, or other way around, and get that time that way. It's, I don't personally think it's as good as going out and doing a five-hour ride outside, but this is the that good old expression, don't let uh, the perfect get in the way of the good enough. But if you're using these tools, if you're used to being on the trainer, um, you can do more time because it's not going to be quite as mentally draining on you. Again, be aware that it changes the biomechanics. So you need to get outside. You do need to do some riding outside or second best, get on the rollers. And that's at least going to help the balance component that, that isn't helped when you're on a, a trainer locked in. The last part to this answer I want to give is, is just my own experience. And I think back to my last year when I was racing full-time, which was 2013, we had a really lousy winter in Colorado that year, and it was hard getting outside. And I was doing things like driving down to the Colorado-New uh, Mexico border where there was less snow just to get some, some rides in. And I ended up having a pretty bad start to that season because I couldn't get good base work. But... I just couldn't get on the trainer. I couldn't do more than an hour on the trainer. So it was an extreme frustration to me. Now, getting on, I can do 
when I need to, a three, four hour ride on Zwift. And I can't tell you many times I sit there on Zwift and go, I would not want to do this all the time. I, I, I would not want to be doing all my four hour rides on Zwift. But boy, I look back in 2013 and I really wish I had had Zwift then because those weeks when we had snow and I just couldn't get outside, this would have been a godsend. And I, I would have done more time inside to make sure I was, I was keeping my training consistent. All right. The next question comes from a Jan Kushar. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And it's a really short, quick question about physiology resources. He asks, what book on physiology do you recommend for a young coach and student of kinesiology? I'm fed up with encountering outdated publications that mention lactic acid. Trevor, I know you have some go-to books and references that you probably want to recommend here. I'm going to get in big trouble for this, but the first thing I do want to call out is just the kinesiology. There was this trend about 10, 15 years ago where a lot of these exercise science departments, which tended to, you know, when they were formed, they, they were called the physical education or the PE departments, and that just had a bad... Uh, had a bad connotation because they were thinking, oh, the, oh that's a gym, gym coach. Right, exactly. So... They tried to come up with names that sounded more scientific, so a lot of these departments renamed, this is particularly true up in Canada, they, they renamed themselves to the Department of Kinesiology. Kinesiology is the study of joint movement at its purest definition. It is not the study of physiology, but it just sounds really cool. So I, I, I'm probably going to get a bunch of hate mail from, from uh, departments about this, but it is a bit of a, a misnomer, in my opinion. And I still personally prefer exercise science as, as the, the, the name of these departments or exercise physiology. Right. So, yeah, let's assume that he's looking for some, some uh, good resources for mm -hmm. exercise physiology texts. So I have three that I really like. Uh, I'll list them and then I'll just get to a second question. He brought up the... Is there one that's, that's not outdated? And so let me give the names, and then I'm going to address that question. I would say probably the well, these are all somewhat in the gold standard area, but I would say the, one, one of the true gold standards is Brooks, Fahey, Baldwin, and it's just called Exercise Physiology. And this is the exercise physiology book for the true scientist or or, or biochemist. Uh, it goes deep into the weeds. You, you really need to know your biochemistry to fully appreciate the book. But it's a fantastic one. The next one, which is, uh, I, this might be the true gold standard, in my opinion, is McArdle. And that's Exercise, Physiology, Nutrition, Energy, and Human Performance. It is a giant textbook. Uh, and it just covers everything. I would say it's remarkably comprehensive. The other one I would recommend, and this is the one that I recommend to people if they're trying to get their first exercise physiology textbooks, is Powers Holly, and that's the Exercise Physiology Theory and Application to Fitness and Performance. So I think they're all good textbooks. I have copies of all of them, and I do look back at them frequently. But, let's put it this way, I actually was fortunate enough to go to a presentation by Dr. Brooks, 
And he actually talked about writing his textbook and made the point that this is a thousand page book, eight and a half by 11. Actually, I think his is a little, his wasn't quite eight and a half by 11, but still, these are giant textbooks. By the time they are published, they are out of date. Right. That's right, just right. the way yep. it works. So you have to look at them more as these are good for initial learning. You know, I learned all the concepts of physiology, of exercise science from these books, and still those concepts, most of them are, are, are still relevant. Uh, I don't look to those books for the details anymore. If you want to stay current with what's going on with the science, you have to go to the research. So I spend most of my time in actual research studies, and I, I use those books more as a reference just to go, okay, I just read a study that made some references to how uh, the, the pulmonary vascular system works. And I'm like, I haven't read about that in a couple of years. I'll, I'll quickly pull out McArdle and go and reread that section of the textbook just to give myself a, a bit of a refresher. And otherwise, you're probably heading to PubMed yes. 10 times a day, correct? I, I live in PubMed. For those who don't know, PubMed is, is that run by the federal government? Yes. No, So it's it PubMed.gov. Don't yeah. type in PubMed.com. It is a one-stop shop for all of the scientific literature that in any field, not just exercise physiology, mind you. This is, this is um, universal. So go there, put in search terms. You can find everything there whether you're able to read the articles or not in full is a matter of whether you have a subscription to some of these journals or if they make them uh, freely available so it's yep. it's still fascinating to to comb through there and i would say the other one that's rapidly becoming the most popular source is now researchgate mm -hmm. so scientists can actually join researchgate themselves and then make all of their research available. So that's a, that's a fantastic place to go. So sometimes if you go to PubMed, you might find a study that you, you can't access, but if you go to ResearchGate, you can, rec you can find it, find it on the, the, that author's actual section of ResearchGate and request it from the author, and uh, the, they will give you access if they feel there's a good reason. Well, let's move on to our final question. And this one we're going to take from our Google voicemail box. It comes from Eric Edgar. Let's listen to him now. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Eric Edgar. Uh, I live in Durango, Colorado now. Uh, moved from Tulsa, Oklahoma about a year and a half ago. And my question has to do with uh, altitude and uh, whether you would structure uh, workouts, particularly interval workouts, uh, differently at altitude versus uh, not at altitude. So would you have uh, on, on uh, a five-by-five-minute uh, threshold workout that you uh, normally say that you would uh, have one-minute rest periods in between, would you instead... Uh, have longer rest periods uh, if uh, you uh, were at altitude versus not. Thanks. All right, Trevor. What do you think? This is my apology. We are going to do an episode, hopefully relatively soon, on both training at altitude 
And we are also doing an episode on the the right length for uh, or recovery length in intervals. Uh, I need to refresh myself and all that science. I want to dig into that science. There's a huge body of research on on altitude training, and it is quite complex. So everything I'm saying right now. I may very well contradict in those episodes once I have dug deeper into the research. I am not basing this on a whole lot of science. I, I am more talking as a coach and in particular as an athlete who has lived and trained at sea level and lived and trained at altitude. So please accept my giant apology and qualifier. It wouldn't be a f- episode of Fast Talk without a good old Canadian apology from Trevor anyways. So we got it in there. The little bit of the science I will give you is what I, I was implying before, which is our response to altitude is not simple. I certainly remember the, the good old days of the 80s and the 90s where the belief was, oh, get up to Colorado, do some altitude training for a week or two, and then you're going to destroy everybody in the races. Some people would go and do that, and they would come back and absolutely destroy. Other people would go up to altitude and come back, and their season was effectively completely off course and almost over. We all respond very differently to, to altitude. There is a what's called hypoxia-inducible factor, which regulates our, our HIF-1, which regulates most of our response to hypoxia, so being training at altitude. And I did actually write a, a paper on this for when I was doing my, my master's degree, and how HIF-1 influences our response to hypoxia varies it varies from person to person and also varies over time so you have an acute response and then you have a chronic response some people and i'm one of them are what are called altitude non-responders we never really fully adapt Uh, other people seem to adapt or handle it really well in 2011, Chad Haga joined Rio, and he moved to Colorado at the, the end of March, and I just went, boy, his season is over, because I had remembered in 2009 what had happened when I moved to Colorado in, in January, and it effectively destroyed my entire season. Uh, so I felt bad for him, and then somehow he just adapted pretty much right away and, and was absolutely crushing it, particularly at, at highest altitudes. And that whole season, I, I just noticed when he and I went for rides together, the higher we got, the, the, just the stronger he seemed. Altitude just had no impact on him. So everybody is different. And there is no one answer. And it's important to know uh, how you in particular respond. So with that being said, in terms of the recovery length in your intervals, should you adjust them? That's a really good question that I don't have an answer for. Uh, I, the, the best I can give you, you, you talked about the example of, uh, I think you said the five by five minute intervals. Is that what we saw? Yeah, five by five minute intervals. Uh, if you're doing those and, and doing them with a one minute recovery and you just aren't ready to do the next interval, you might have to lengthen it. 
you always have to be able to do your interval work with quality. So if the recovery is not long enough to, to hit sufficient quality on the next interval, do lengthen it. My personal approach, though, has been to try to stick with the interval of prescriptions that I was doing at sea level. Because one thing they have shown is some people move up to altitude and while they get a good HIF-1 response, they don't actually get stronger because they don't train as hard at altitude. So I took the approach with myself of saying I need to force myself to try to train as hard as I did at sea level. Quick addendum there as well is you know, my, my power ranges would change. My wattage was 20, 30 watts lower, so I would adjust my wattage. But I, I would stick mostly with the same heart rates, mostly with the same prescriptions, and try to force myself to do the same thing at altitude. The one lesson I did learn was that there were certain intervals I simply couldn't do it at altitude. I used to love these two minutes on, two minutes off intervals. I would go so hypoxic doing those intervals at altitude, I couldn't get through a set. Uh, the other thing I noticed is you, you can really lose that top end at altitude. Uh, you kind of can become this tank of a, a rider that can go long, hard, steady, but if somebody attacks, you just can't respond. So I have found it increasingly important when I'm at altitude to do some short, really high-intensity intervals to offset some of those effects. Chris, you've, you've you moved up here as well. What's been your experience? Well, you know, it's been so long since I've lived for a period of time at sea level that I don't even remember, really. Um, I do know, though, that, uh, and again, it's individual, if I'm... You know, I've lived in Colorado now almost 20 years. So when I go back to where I grew up in Connecticut or somewhere else at a lower elevation. So if, I, if I'm not in great shape in Colorado and I go back to a place at lower elevation, I don't have that sensation that I'm in incredible shape. Whereas if I'm flying in Colorado and then I go back to Connecticut, say, where, where I grew up, it feels like I have two, maybe three extra gears sometimes. So uh, I don't know what that says about training at altitude, uh, and but it just it speaks to its variable within people in terms of how it affects your fitness, um, and certainly the the top end type stuff. You could train that exclusively in Colorado, but I don't know that you'll ever get to the level that you would if you trained it appropriately at, you know, at, at sea level in some ways. It just, it's not, it doesn't work as well here, in, in, at least for me. Um, so yeah, and then, you know, after, to, to go back to Eric's situation a little bit, he's been in Durango, which is, you know, a uh, probably around um, the, the same elevation as Boulder. He's been there for a year and a half. So at this point, he's acclimated as much as he will. Would you say that that's correct, Trevor? He's not going to get progressively more acclimated at this point. It he's, does he's depend done. on the person. So does for example, with myself, and both times now that I've moved to Colorado, I've noticed this. My first year is a write-off. 
I don't fully adjust to the altitude until the uh, over a year later. Wow, that's that's crazy in yeah. a way. Yep. I feel like yeah, you know, again, I haven't been out of the state for a long enough period of time to really know, but I feel like a couple weeks, a month at most and I would be right back where I was. Yep. One last thing to to throw in here, because I think Durango is actually closer to 6,000 feet, isn't it? So while you're looking that up, I am going to explain another really important piece of the physiology here. And let's 65, see if- 65, 22. Yeah, so that's a, actually a big difference. There is a very important curve, and you can look this up, and let's see if I can pronounce this right. Uh, the oxyhemodissociation curve, or is it mm, the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve? It is, a, it is a mouthful. But basically, the gist of this curve is our response to altitude as you go to increasingly higher altitudes is not a straight line. I'm going to really simplify this. On the x-axis is altitude. And on the y-axis is the the effect it has on you. I'm really trying not to go too deep into the details, but hemoglobin binds oxygen. It actually changes the the nature of that binding. So as you go to higher and higher altitude, it can bind oxygen better, or or it grabs it uh, more strongly. The the issue being the uh, when that blood then gets to your muscle cells, it's also harder for it to disassociate that, that oxygen, to take it from the hemoglobin and pull it into the muscle cells. Interesting. So, so again, I'm trying not to go too deep into the weeds, but the, the essence of this graph is the lower the graph, the more you are being impacted by altitude. Let's just leave it there. I should have just left it there from the start. So if you look at this graph, until you get to about, I think it was right around 5,200 feet above sea level, it's pretty horizontal. It doesn't have that much of an impact on you. Right around 5,200 feet, the graph just goes over a cliff. It starts plummeting quite rapidly. Hmm. And then it hits a, a, once you get to really high altitudes, it hits a point where it just levels off again. But that's where you, you actually just can't survive at altitude for very long. Right. The thought that a lot of people have when they come to altitude is they go, okay, I've, I'm, I, I've been sitting in Boulder at 5,000 feet, or I think we're, what, 5,400 feet? Yeah. And you know, I'm going to climb up to 6,000 feet. That's only another 800 feet or 600 feet. Uh, that's not a big difference. Well, actually completely untrue. The, the difference, the, the impact of going from 5,000 to 6,000 feet is as big on you as going from zero to 5,000 feet. Yeah, wow, exponentially. Right, so increases. there's a really popular race here in Colorado up in Steamboat, and Steamboat is, I think, right around 6,000 feet, and this race goes up to like 7,500 feet. And all of us who, who live right around 5,000 feet complain that the altitude really hits us when we go to that race. Sorry, I was distracted because I was looking up the elevation of Steamboat. Yeah. 67 in town. Yeah. There you go. So it's, and I, I, I love that race, but yeah, I really feel the altitude when I go to it. I just can't put out the same power. 
Well, it, it's it's clear, Trevor, that we need to do an entire episode on both of these things again. Let you do all of the research on altitude and training at altitude, and you should also do all of the research on the significance of rest periods between intervals, and let's do both of those episodes soon. Yes. And my last addendum here is I was describing the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve by memory without having looked at it in a long Ooh, time. Man. So I'm sure we're going to get some, boy, you got that wrong. And the first thing I'm going to know is if for some reason I remembered it starting high and going low, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's, it starts low and then goes high. We will definitely do that episode. I will fix all the mistakes I'm sure I just <laughs> made. But the gist of what I was just explaining is, is pretty accurate. If you type in O-X-Y-H-E into Google, at least in my, on my browser, oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve right. is the first thing that pops up. And there's great um, tutorials and graphs and yep. you can totally nerd out. Um, but yeah, let's, let's make sure we brush up on our science and do a whole episode yep. on it. So I'm looking at those and when you adapt, you will see that curve move. So I'm actually looking at a really good version of it right now that, that shows the, uh, the, the different adaptations to, to altitude. It is a, a very complex curve. It's a fascinating curve uh, and definitely worth taking a look at seeing our sort of our physiological response. But the key lesson of it that I just want to leave us with for this episode is you will see initially altitude, increase in altitude actually has a, a very minimal impact. And then there is a point where the curve becomes quite steep uh, and increase in altitude has a much more dramatic impact on us. Absolutely. Very good, Trevor. Thank you. You did a lot of talking in this episode. That's what these Q&As are about. I hope I gave some good answers, but we really appreciate this. I was, Chris pulled these questions together and I was uh, really kind of amazed and impressed with uh, the the number of questions we've received in a very short period of time so thank you to everybody for for listening that was another episode of fast talk as always we love your feedback email us at fasttalk at fastlab.com or call 719-800-2112 and leave us a voicemail subscribe to fast talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts be sure to leave us a rating and a review the thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.